Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Some of you will have uh, heard Jeff preach before. If you listen to Vision Christian Radio, he's regularly uh, on there preaching. A real blessing to many people uh, around our nation. Jeff has been involved in uh, mission work for 20 years in Zimbabwe and New Zealand. And everybody here knows that New Zealand desperately needs Jesus. And uh, he's been doing you know, church planting work and, uh, and, and, and raising up leaders uh, throughout those nations. And for the last 10 or so years, has uh, been leading a great church, as I said, in San Dimas Valley, multi-campus church, doing uh, incredible things, seeing people come to faith in California. He's a great uh, Bible teacher, really good bloke. I know you're going to get blessed by him. Why don't you give him a big welcome as he comes up this morning? Thanks for, thanks for having me, man. Well, it's fantastic to be back in Australia. Uh, every time I come uh, to Australia, then I have to go back to L.A. As I'm going through the gates at the airport, the, here, uh, the thought that goes through my mind is it's going to be another year before I get a decent cup of coffee. <laughs> and if you've traveled to the U.S., you know well, I'm telling the truth. And so it, it is great to be back. You know, uh, Jason and Susan came to visit uh, in L.A. a couple years ago. We were so impressed. Now, I, I'm, as I tell the story that I'm going to tell later on, uh, I know about Gateway. Gateway is, is somewhat famous among pastors in L.A. because we know uh, the fantastic church that you are. And you've been fantastic for a long, long time now. In fact, I brought some of the staff, my executive pastor and Steve and Christy with me, so maybe we could learn a few things about what you're doing, your influence, and some of the strategies that you have. And so uh, Jason and Susan came up, we went to lunch afterwards, and I'm sitting there looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I like this guy or not. You know, he, he's better looking than I am, he's, he's smarter, uh, and I've been trying to find something that I could better him, and I finally talked to Susan, and she said he wasn't a very good golfer, that he's horrible, so I'm hoping to get a game of golf with him sometime, at some point, just to boost my ego a little bit. Uh, a few years ago, when we worked in, and lived in New Zealand, uh, my son would have been about eight years old, and every, every January at that time, so we're talking about early 2000s, they would have the New Zealand Golf Open, at a golf course called Gulf Harbor out on the Fongapro Peninsula. And so if you know anything about New Zealand, and if you're Kiwi here, I'm sorry, but you know your weather stinks, okay? Let's just be honest. And January and February, though, in New Zealand is probably not a better place in the world that you can be because the weather for those eight to ten weeks, ideal. And so they would play the New Zealand Golf Open. I took my son, Delaney, who was eight years old, avid golfer, learning the game, to just watch. And uh, it's, it was hot. It's hot and dry in January, February, and you can get thirsty. And it's right there on the ocean, a beautiful golf course. And we're probably as far away from the clubhouse as you can get. And my son, who had been drinking water all day, was desperate for, what do you call them here? I can't, are they Portageons, Portalette? You know what I'm talking about, portable toilets. And in the States, when you watch a golf tournament, they're everywhere. They got Portageons everywhere. But I noticed that New Zealand... In their golf tournaments, they're only really situated by the 18th green. And so we were a long way away, and my son really needed to, to use a portable toilet. So we walked all the way back, 
And I took him into the toilet, made sure he was safe, closed the door, went over to the little kiosk and got a hot dog and a Diet Coke, the ultimate oxymoron. <laughs> and as we're there, it, I guess 10 minutes went by, and I walked back over to the portalette and knocked on the door, and there was no, no sound. And I got a little concerned. Delaney, from the time he was born, likes to play practical jokes on his father. So I'm knocking on the door, son, are you okay? No sound. And I let a little time go by, and I knock on it again, and I say, son, I, this is serious. It's not time to practical joke. Just let me know you're okay in there, okay? Nothing. Now, I'm about 6'4", and I weigh about 200 pounds, and these you know, these portable toilets are only about maybe 6'8", 6'9", and they're relatively light, except for the blue water. <laughs> and so I just kind of got up on top of it like this with my hands, and I start rocking it a little bit. And I'm thinking, I'm going to make him a little nervous, and he's going to answer. But I rocked it a little bit and nothing. So now I'm really getting upset. So I took the toilet, and I almost had that thing horizontal. I mean, I, I pulled it down. And then I threw it back up into its place, and it just kind of rocked back and forth until it settled into its original position. And, of course, there's stuffed blue water coming out of the cracks and everything, and I'm thinking, I'm really going to get this guy good. And about that time, unfortunately, this is not a made-up story. This is a true story. There's a tap on my shoulder. I look around. It's my son, Delaney. <laughs> he says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, no, 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 what are you doing? I put you right there. He said, yeah, I know I didn't like it. I went to another one. And about that time, a little lady from China walked out of the, of the portable toilet. And she did not speak a lot of English. She had come all the way from China to watch the New Zealand golf open. Golf is growing in China and Japan. And I turned around and I was just uh, horrified that I had done this to this poor little old lady. And I started to move for, uh, forward toward her to apologize and she interpreted my forwardness as aggression. And so she got a little more terrified. And of course, she had, you can imagine, what was all over her. And I'm, and I'm trying to explain to her. Finally, she runs away. And after about 10 minutes later, when the police found me <laughs> with her, and she's trying to explain, thank God the policeman that she went to get was a member of the church I pastored in New Zealand. And so I explained to him what had happened and how it was all one big mistake. But she continued to shout at me. And if you know anything about golf, it's a four-day tournament. Well, this was the first day. And so every day she saw me after that, she and her three friends would run to the other side of the fairway and just terrified. And I, I find that to be a fantastic illustration of how even though I wanted to communicate something to her that would apologize, that would solve the problem, that would maybe release some of her fear, I couldn't speak the language. I couldn't communicate to her. Now, Gateway Baptist has a great reputation. It is a fantastic church, a prevailing church. But the call of God on your life is that you, to understand that you have a message, and it's the message the world needs. But you've got to learn how the world is thinking in order to contextualize the good news of the gospel in a way they can understand. Because the temptation of the church is to form your little holy huddles and to not make any relationships outside the church. And I think Jesus says, what on earth are you doing? You are my ambassadors. I am making my appeal to humanity through you. And I'm afraid that if I asked some of you if you had any relationships with people who were far from God, that most of you, and I don't, that's why I don't ever do it, I never ask people to raise hands, I'm afraid that there would be very few hands raised. Now, I want to tell you something that happened in my life not too far from here. And I have looked forward to this day when I could tell this story here 
in this place, and you'll find out as we, as we develop it. But when I was doing ministry in New Zealand, I was invited over by the Brisbane Basketball Association with Vic Bennett and Tony Bennett, who are basketball coaches in the U.S. As a matter of fact, Tony Bennett just won the national championship in, uh, in March Madness in this past March and April. Tony's a good friend of mine. Dick Bennett is also a good friend of mine who coached at Wisconsin. They invited me over with the Basketball Association to do some basketball camp in local high schools. I was a basketball player in college, played on a scholarship, loved the game. At the same time, church planters were asking me to come over and do a church planting conference in Brisbane. So I had two invitations, and it just so happened they coincided the same week. One was in the morning, one was in the evening. I arrived at Brisbane Airport and discovered that both organizations had booked me into a hotel. So I was double booked. The, the, uh, the basketball camp had booked me into a five-star hotel, not too far, downtown Brisbane. So you can imagine where we are. The church planters had booked me into a hole in the wall. Now, because I spent 20 years on the mission field, I'm used to sacrifice, so I chose the five-star hotel. I thought I'd sacrificed enough. And I checked into the hotel. I'm seated down at a coffee table having my latte. Love Australia. You guys make coffee. You're the best. New Zealand's not far behind you. And I'm working on my, uh, my lectures for church planting and a little bit of what I'm going to do with some of the young kids in basketball. Hotel manager walks up to me. Now, remember, we're in a five-star hotel. Her name is Laura. She's the consummate professional. She actually welcomes every new guest into her hotel. So she walked over. She gave me a tourism speech, all the things that I could go and see. One of it was Greg Norman's new golf course at the time, Brookwater. So it gives you kind of an idea of the timing we're talking about here. And I listened, and then I just thought, Ben, I hope she goes away because I'm really busy and I don't want to hear anymore. She goes away. Within a minute, she comes back, and she asked me a question that I'm not often asked by a hotel manager. She says, uh, Mr. Vines, would you mind if I ask you what it is that you do? Now, uh, immediate dilemma, right, in Australia. Now, I could tell her I'm a pastor, which you don't know what's going to happen. Or I could tell her I'm a basketball coach. Now, both would be true. I decided to go the pastoral route. I told her I'm a pastor and waited for the remark. And immediately, the look on her face was, what's a guy like you doing wasting your life like this? Why are you a pastor? Come on, you could be out enjoying the nightlife in Brisbane, drinking, partying, having fun. What a waste of life. And then she just walked back, and I thought, well, okay, it happens all the time. And then she came back again. A minute later, she comes back. Strange invitation. She says, Pastor Jeff, I wonder if you would mind, would you like to be my guest at dinner tonight? Now, I've spent my life as an apologist uh, trying to answer uh, life's most penetrating questions, but there's one question I've answered. What is life ultimately about? Free food. And so <laughs> I'm in a five-star hotel, and I'm going to get free food. Of course, I'm not going to turn that down. I went up, changed my shirt, came down to the restaurant. When I got to the restaurant, Laura, the hotel manager, had already set up the table. And have you ever arrived in a room when you knew they had been talking about you before you got there? Well, they were all, they'd already ordered their drinks. They had been talking. They told me seven. They probably started at 6.30. Laura had a little placard made with my name on it. At the very end of the table, she sat at the other end. This is adjacent to the hotel lobby. She had her staff, probably 12 total, on each side of the table. So it was this one big round table, like the round table of the nights, you know. And so I take my seat, and I'm wondering, what's this all about? Well, Within two minutes, I realized that I'm the entertainment for the night. They're all going to have a go at this pastor. It all started when Dan, who was in charge of hotel security, buzz blonde haircut, earring in his left ear, 
looks at me, and this is within two minutes of the conversation, says to me, so Laura tells us you're a pastor. How is it that you can believe in God with all the evil in our world? Takes a big drink of his Australian beer, slams it down. He's so proud of himself, and he thinks that's it. It's all over. Now, what he didn't know, as well as Laura and everybody around the table, is when he asked that question, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Because I get free food, and I get to talk about my favorite topic, God. But you should have seen the look on Dan's face, because in his mind, it's over. There's nothing to talk about. When I said to Dan, Dan, that's a fantastic question. Can we go back and forth on it just a little bit? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you've asked a good question. Can we, can we dialogue? Uh, okay. Now, the first part of this is difficult. And if you'll just stay with me, you'll get used to my accent and some of the language I'm using, and then the rest of it will be so encouraging. But the first part's hard. Because I looked at Dan and I said, Dan, the problem is that your question fundamentally destructs. It's self-destructive in the sense that it contradicts its own premise. Once you assume there's evil in the world, you're also assuming there's good. And once you assume there's evil and good, you're also assuming there is a moral law that governs those two categories. You with me? How do you know what right and wrong are unless you have a moral law that governs those definitive categories? So that when something happens in your life in the world, you say, oh, that goes in the category of evil and that goes in the category of good. And the only way you'd know that is if you have a moral law that governs those categories. The problem with that moral law is it has to be objective and absolute. It can't be changing because if the moral law is subjective and changing, then those categories are also subjective and changing. So there's no real such thing as evil or good at all. Once you tell me there's evil in the world, you're assuming there's evil, you're assuming there's good, you're assuming you have the intrinsic ability to distinguish between the two, and you're assuming there's an absolute moral law that governs those two categories. Dan looks at me and he says, huh? <laughs> I said, well, you've got a good question, but it self-destructs. It is set what we call in logic or philosophy, it is self-defeating. And I gave him this example that I'll give people who talk about moral law. If you could get in a time machine and go back and talk to Hitler, and you said something like, let's say we found him in South America hiding in the swamps, and we said, Hitler, you were a bad man. You murdered six million innocent Jews. You, uh, you took entire families and shot them at point-blank rage, buried their bodies in a, in a pit they were forced to dig themselves. You, uh, you sent the little babies into the gas ovens. You're an evil man. Now, what if Hitler said this? No, no, you say I'm evil, but I say I'm good because I was simply protecting my people, the German people, against the tarnish and corrosion of the Jewish bloodline. I was trying to... To, to, to create the ubermensch, the superhuman. So you say what I did was evil, what I say I did was good. Now, unless there's an absolute moral law somewhere that says you can't go around committing genocide because you think somebody is going to tarnish your bloodline, then you and I would not have an argument to make. One of the things I did in my 30s is read the, the transcripts from the Nuremberg trials. And in those transcripts, the generals of the Third Reich continued to say in court, public hearing, you cannot hold us responsible for what we did because we were only obeying the laws of our land. And that was the argument for a few days until one of the American lawyers stood up and said, wait a minute, gentlemen, isn't there a law above our laws? Isn't there a law that is objective, that's absolute, that we all answer to? So even if a society begins to believe that rape is right, rape is still wrong because there's an objective moral law that says so. 
And as soon as you stand up and tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong, you assume an absolute moral law to govern the categories of good and evil. Dan, his response was classic. Dan said, well, what am I asking you then? Isn't that great? I said, well, you've got a good question, but the way you phrase it is self-defeating. And here's why again. Who can give us an absolute moral law to give us absolute moral categories of good and evil? Only an absolute moral lawgiver. Do you see the problem you have? Only God, who's transcendent outside of time and space, only God, the creator, sustainer of the universe, is the only one who can give an absolute objective moral law to govern the objective categories of good and evil. In other words, without God, there's no such thing as evil. A moral law that is absolute requires an absolute moral lawgiver. So, if you say there's evil in the world, you automatically assume there's evil and good. You have the ability to distinguish between the two. You also believe in an absolute moral law that governs the categories. And you believe that God, the absolute moral lawgiver, gives the absolute moral law. There's no such thing as evil unless there's such a thing as God. Now, at this point, Dan is very frustrated. And he starts drinking heavily. Remember, this just happened not too far from here. Laura is at the end of the table. And she starts to see how this evening is going, and it's not going the way she expected. And have you ever been in a conversation with someone, and while you're talking to them, the hair on the back of your neck is standing up because there's somebody behind you about to get you? And as I finished with Dan, and he's starting to drink, and he's very frustrated, wishing he had never come to this dinner, there's a lady by the name of Sherry who is a major in philosophy at the University of Queensland. And she literally grabbed my arm. And she looked at me and she said, you theologians are all alike. You're all doodlers with words. Now, I'm sorry, but that's how I would describe a philosopher. <laughs> Climbing higher and higher up the ladder of abstraction, never arriving at any conclusion. But that's another argument for another time. She said, then Pastor Jeff, why don't you answer your own question and stop picking on Dan? And by the way, let me, let me say something here. We're talking about this story in a safe setting. But at no point was I disrespectful to Dan. I mean, if you do that, you might as well forget it anyway. Through the entire argument and conversation, it was, it was a cordial discussion. They were a bit aggressive during the six hours, which is how long this conversation ended up lasting. And nobody left, by the way. Nobody left. Because people are more interested in spiritual things than you think. Matter of fact, I just read something last week. The new Barna Research Group has discovered, and this is primarily in the West, that while 33% of born-again Christians are willing to share their story or their faith, 77% of the unchurched are welcoming a spiritual conversation. Only one in three Christians will give it, but two out of three would actually welcome a spiritual conversation. Stop believing the lie that you think everybody's anti-God and everybody's anti-spiritual conversation. Just because you've had one bad experience doesn't mean everyone's like that. And so, Sherry says, answer your own question. And I said, what's my question? She says, well, you said that there's no, if we admit evil, that we're admitting God. And then Sherry, she's clever, because the real question is, how can you Christians claim that God is good with all the pain and suffering of little children in the world? Well, of anybody, really. Now, you, do you see how that's a fair question, but it's different? The first question assumes the existence of God, defining moral categories. The second question assumes God's existence, but questions his methods. 
If God is good like you Christians say he is, why is there so much pain and suffering? And Sherry said, have you never been to Africa? Now what Sherry didn't know is I had lived in Africa for 10 years. Now seated next to Sherry, stay with me, seated next to Sherry was her boyfriend, Richard. And uh, guys, you'll understand what I'm saying. Uh, Richard liked Sherry a lot more than Sherry liked Richard. Because through the entire night, he couldn't keep his hands off her. But he wasn't reciprocating. So you know how, guys, you can tell, man, this is a sad case here. He really likes her, but she's kind of apathetic toward him. Which made him the perfect candidate to answer Sherry's question. So I looked at Richard and I said, Richard, Sherry's asking a good question. How can we Christians believe in a good God with all the suffering in the world? How can we believe in a good God, a merciful God? Do you mind if I use you to answer the question? Now, he has seen what happened to Dan. So he doesn't really want to get in a conversation. But, but chivalry's not dead. There's a part of him that wants to come to her rescue. So he says, yeah, okay, sure. And I said, Richard, what if I told you I could give you a little computer chip and while Sherry's sleeping tonight, you could somehow install it in the back of her head. And it, it, it comes with a little keyboard. And in that keyboard, you could program Sherry to say, to do, and to think everything you want her to say, do, and think. You're in total control now. And of course, every male around that table, yeah, yeah, huh? you, do you have this microchip? As a matter of fact, I think some of the guys thought, oh, this is why Laura brought Jeff here. He's got the microchip. We're going to take back the world. Richard says, I would love it. And I gave him a few examples. You type in. You want Sherry to say, Richard, what do you want for dinner? You type it in. She says it. Uh, Richard, you're the most handsome man that I've ever met. You type it in. She says it. More importantly, Richard, I love you and only you. Type it in. She says it. I said, how would you like that? Richard said, oh, I'd love it. I said, no, you wouldn't. He goes, yes, I would. Don't tell me what I'd like. No, you wouldn't like it. Why not? Because it would be meaningless after a while. Because love and adoration and affection are not real unless they are given freely. You can force a woman to do a lot of things, but you cannot force her to love you. Correct? Love is something that is given out of a choice, a decision that you make. And part of the reason a man, a young man is so happy when he proposes to his girlfriend and she says yes, is not only that he's going to be married to the woman that he loves, but that she's chosen him over everybody else. The Bible tells us that God is love. Not just that he loves, but that he is love in his essence. And the primary reason you and I were created was for a love relationship between the creator and the creature. Once God says that in this creation scenario, the highest value is love between him and us, and the very reason you're created is for that loving relationship, as soon as God decides that's the way this universe is going to be, he has to give you the freedom to reject him. If you want God to make us all like robots, he can do that. But in that kind of universe, there's no authentic love. For love to maintain its integrity, it has to be given freely out of the possibility of rejection. The problem is this. As soon as God gives you the freedom to pursue him or to reject him, it opens the door to all pain and suffering. How? Because many people will not pursue God, but will pursue their own self-aggrandizement. And 99.9% .9 of the pain and suffering in this world is what we do to each other. Because we're not good with God, we're not good with humanity. And I answered Sherry's question. I did live in Africa. And I remember when I was 22, 23 years old, I was driving, driving on the road from Harare 
uh, to Mashvingo, one of our mission hospitals. Um, I lived in uh, Zimbabwe, and it was a time of drought, and I remember passing the villages and seeing the swollen bellies of the little children. And I remember pulling over the side of the road and, 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 and praying, God, where are you? How can I keep going? How can I believe? Look at this God. God did not speak to me audibly, but that was the beginning of my apologetic journey because I began to realize that Zimbabwe is the breadbasket of Africa. They have enough food because of two growing seasons to feed the entire country ten times over. But there's an evil dictator by the name of Robert Mugabe who died about a year ago, right, or maybe a few months ago, who would take all the maize and the corn and all the diamond out of the diamond mines and he would sell them for foreign currency and pad his Swiss bank account while his people starved to death. So while we look up and we say, why God? You know what God does? I think he looks down and says, no, why you? Why do you use the freedom that I've given you to pursue a loving relationship with your creator to wreak havoc on each other? You want God to remove pain and suffering out of the world? He can, but you'd have to be the first to go. As long as you have free will to love God, you also possess the potential to wound the people around you. Is there anybody in this room who's not hurt somebody? You say, well, Pastor Jeff, can't God restrict it a little bit better? I understand that we live in a fallen world. And actually, uh, Alison Rowe, a famous New Zealand runner who won the Boston and New York marathons in the same year, when I was doing ministry in New Zealand, must have been in my mid-30s at this point, she asked me if I would perform the wedding, her wedding, to she was going to marry a, another uh, sports icon. And I said, well, I can do that, Allison, but is he a believer? She says, I think so, which is always not good. If you don't know, they're probably not. And so I said, well, I'll take him to lunch and we'll talk. So I took him to lunch. Not only was he not a believer, he was an atheist. And so he started firing questions, and I would answer his questions, and the meeting was going well. And then at the end of the meeting, he looks at me out of frustration because his questions have been answered, and he takes his cup of coffee, and he says, I'll tell you what, Pastor Jeff, let's just bring this to an end. I'll believe in your God when he removes all the pain and suffering out of the world. And he slams his coffee cup down, and my response to him is, okay, but you'll be the first to go. As long as you exist, the potential for pain and suffering exists because you exist with free will, designed by God that you would pursue a relationship with him. Now, about this time, stay with me now. Dan is drunk now. Seriously. He, he wishes he had never come to the meeting. Sherry is struggling. She's dealt with this kind of beyond abstract truths into ideas about how the universe works, and she's trying to think of more questions. Richard is still hoping for the microchip. <laughs> and then Jucinda, only two more people. Jucinda down on the right-hand side, who was the smartest person around the table, very wise woman, very educate, well-educated, she said, she kind of folded her arms and said, okay, my turn, Pastor Jeff. I've been waiting on this. You tell me how you can say, you Christians, you're all the same. How can you say that God is good and then send somebody to hell? She said, this is 12 years of Catholic school talking, so I know what you people teach. How can your good God send anybody to hell? Torment and suffering. Now, this is where it's important that you and I understand what hell is and how we communicate it to people. What is hell in the Bible? Greek word Gehenna. 
Gehenna is a word that refers to the pit outside of the walls of Jerusalem where they would bury people, criminals, who were not claimed by their family members. And the smoke was said to rise forever and ever. So when Jesus wants to describe what life is like apart from God, he uses the description of this smoldering pit where the smoke rises and basically your life comes to ruin. Now, if you look carefully, every time Jesus talks about hell, the primary point is not the fire and the darkness, and it might be fire, but I think most of those are literal things, but anytime you have literal, or sorry, uh, metaphorical things, but anytime you have metaphorical things, the significance or the reality of which is usually far more intense. And so Jesus uses the symbol to illustrate that there will be people all of their lives refuse to pursue God. Even though, Romans 1, they know by the created order, by the beauty and the vastness of the heavens that there is a God, they decide not to pursue God. So they say all of their lives, I don't want God, I don't, want, I don't need God. So God, because he's the ultimate respecter of free will choice, won't even violate your freedom in eternity. He looks at you in the words of C.S. Lewis and he says, okay then, not my will but yours be done. And you are separated from God for eternity. But where there is no God, there can be no good thing, and evil then will run rampant. So when people say, well, why doesn't your God push back some of the evil and pain in our world? How do you know he's not? You have no idea what it would be like if the evil one, we're told in Scripture, there are two kingdoms diametrically opposed to one another. We're told that there's the prince of the power of the air. How do you know that as bad as our world is right now, that it would be a hundredfold worse if God didn't say this far, no further. In fact, history would tell us he's done exactly that. There comes a time when he says, no, that's it, that's enough. And by some strange, almost supernatural happening, a war is halted, a victory is given, a disease is stopped. But you never know the mind of God, do you? But that's the point. If you knew the mind of God, you'd be God. If you decide all your life not to pursue God, God looks at you in eternity and says, okay, not my will, yours be done. And you go into a realm, nobody knows exactly how this works, where God fully and completely withdraws his presence. Therefore, there is no good thing. Now, when Jucinda heard that, that spoke to her. And by the way, let me stop here for a second. Not every conversation I have turns out this well. I don't want you to think, man, he goes around the world. Every conversation, it goes like, no, it doesn't. This almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Because every question builds on the previous one. So I've had a lot of fails in these conversations. They don't always end this way. I'm telling you this one for two reasons. One, this is one of the successful ones. And two, it happened in your own backyard, but there's a third one too. After Jacinda had her question answered, and remember, I'm trying to tell you six hours of conversation in 35 minutes. Laura now at this point is crying. She's visibly weeping. So here's this consummate professional hotel manager who is weeping. Her friend, whose name is Gloria, seated to her left, I think asked the question that Laura wanted to ask but couldn't bring herself to ask. And this is how, when this happened, I knew that this whole thing was ordained by God. Because Gloria's question was this. Okay, you've answered our questions, Pastor Jeff. Good for you. And it was a lot of sarcasm. But tell me how it is that the central emblem or figure of a faith system is some dude that's hanging on a tree crucified. How can that be good news? And it allowed me, just for a moment, and this is what I want to express to you, that 
You have a message of hope. The suicide rate in the West is increasing every year. Young girls between age of 11 and 15 are the most vulnerable. 11 and 15, what on earth happens to you in just 11 years that you think about taking your life? What's really ironic is that in the West, we have everything, for most of us, we have more money than our parents, better health care than our parents, we have a greater sense of liberty to travel than our parents. We have the things our parents thought that if they gave us, we would be full and complete, and we're killing ourselves. And it's because the soul has to attach itself to something that is beyond and eternal. And if it doesn't, it disintegrates day after day. And you have the message. Because the message of the gospel is the reason Jesus is hanging on this tree is because the God of the Bible is a holy God who is righteous and good and pure. You would expect that if God existed, that he wouldn't struggle with sin himself. You would expect him to be holy, righteous, and pure. And that nature of God requires him to separate himself from all known sin. But thank God, God is also love and chooses to give, wants to give mercy and love and grace to those who have failed, to a fallen world. But God cannot meet one set of requirements of his nature and violate the other. How brilliant then is the cross and the mind of God? And if you're here for the first time or somebody invited you and you've been out of church for a while, I want you to hear this next part. The reason Jesus claims exclusivity is because Jesus is the only one that died for you. He's the one that said, I'm going to take the sins of the world and I'm going to take them on my shoulders, past, present, and future sin. And I'm going to meet the requirements of the holiness of God because sin has been punished. But the requirements of the love of God have been met too because he didn't punish you. He punished his own son on your behalf. Now you say, boy, that's a little bit, you know, that sounds a little bit just atrocious to me. Is it? If God truly wants to communicate the depth of his love for you, how can he do it in a language you would understand? First service, couple seated right over here. I think we have another couple. There's a little lovely girl right down here. Now let me tell you something about mom and dad here. This mother will do anything for these kids. Just try her sometime. And I guarantee the Bible talks about eros, romantic love, phileo, uh, friendship love, uh, agape, unconditional. And then it talks about storge, parental love. And you know, parental love is different than the other three completely. Because I'll promise you that mom will smack dad willingly. If he gets out of line, man, boom. All husbands know that. But the things that she will do for her children, she will do more for those kids than she would anybody else on planet Earth because those kids are so precious to her. So if God really wants to communicate the depth of his love for you, what's he going to do? He's going to give up the thing he loves most. What would he love most? His own son. And the reason the cross is so gory is because God wants to make sure that you have a vivid imagery of what sin does to humanity. We think it's funny. God does not. Because all sin wounds somebody. You've wounded somebody, so have I. And sin is the reason there's so much pain and suffering in our world today. Now at this point, and I'm having to cut it short, at this point, Laura is in a full-on cry session. Now, the people around the table have never seen this. It's somewhere around midnight. They've never seen this. But it's interesting that although I was invited there, they're going to make fun of the pastor. When they need a pastor, oh yeah, now you're going to look at the pastor. Because they're all looking at me. Why aren't you going to help her? 
well, hold on a minute. You don't even believe in my God. What are you talking about? No, you should go and help her. So I walked on the other side of the table, and I knelt down, and I began to talk to Laura. Laura ran away from home when she was 16 because she thought she could never be good enough for her dad. And she was frustrated. She moved to Brisbane. She tried to work her way up the ladder in her career. She went from husband to husband to husband to husband to husband. And every husband was another fail where she felt she could never measure up, never live up. She met one guy that was actually a Christ follower but was part of a very legalistic church. So in her mind, now she's met God, and this God is nothing more than a glorified version of her father. She never measures up. And it dawned on me that Laura had never really heard the gospel. And so I say to her what I now say to you. I said, Laura, you've got God all wrong because Laura put her, head behind her hands behind her head and said, God hates me. And I said, God does not hate you. She goes, yes, he does. He hates me. And I explained to her the good news of the gospel is that God is not the heckler in the stands, that when you blow it in your life, when you just do something you know you shouldn't have done, when you drop the ball on the moral field of life, God doesn't say, you're a loser, you're lousy, you're worthless, and you call yourself a Christian. Why don't you just get out of the game? No, 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 no. The Bible says he's the coach in the locker room at halftime. It says, come on, man, you can do it. I know you blew it. I know you failed. I know it's been miserable, but let's go together. And this is what Jesus offers you that no other system offers. The expulsive power of a new affection, said the Puritans, that the Spirit of God is going to come on the inside of you. We are partakers of the divine nature, and you're going to be able to see things you've never seen, do things you've never done, feel things you've never felt. And God says, get out back on the field, and I'm going to be with you. My Spirit is going to release the energy into you, and you're going to fail, sure, but I'm going to be there to catch you in your fall. And if you don't give up, we're going to do what? We're going to pursue holiness and purity, and you're going to be salt and light and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, and you're going to change the world. When Laura heard that, you know what she did? She just started weeping. She stood up, and she said, I want this. I want this. How do I become a, a whatever this is? How do I get my sins forgiven? How, how do I go to heaven? How do I get to be with God? And we prayed together right there. She receives Christ, and then do you know what she did? She stood up and she looked at her old team around the table and she goes, okay, now everybody together, we're all going to become Christians. <laughs> and I said to Laura, I said, Laura, remember what we said about free will? It doesn't work like that. They have to make their own mind up. They have to decide for themselves. Now, what I didn't get to tell the first service was, whew. She said, can I leave the table? I'll be right back. And I'm thinking, okay. She left the table, and that's when we went into probably a half-hour conversation about micro-macro evolution. So it went to a science kind of discussion. She comes running back, and she says, Jeff, can you stay a little longer? I said, sure I can. She goes, I've just told the man I'm living with to come meet the man who told me I can't live with him anymore. <laughs> and I said, Laura, remember what I said. This is about your freedom, your freedom. So Laura becomes a Christian. I give her my John MacArthur study Bible. It was popular back in those days. And I brought her to a church called Gateway Baptist because it's the only one I knew in the late 90s and early 2000s and I drove her here and I said go in there I've heard this is a good church and I don't know who it is and I've talked to, uh, to Jason and he's going to try to track them down but somebody in this church discipled her way to go I stayed in contact with her for probably 12 years after the fact 13 years after the fact, and a few years ago we lost 
Because as you get older, you go on with your life. She worked for, was it Virgin Blue Clive? She worked for the airlines for a while. We stayed in contact. But she's on fire. She's been on fire for so long. When I wrote Dinner with Skeptics, which is her story of conversion, I sent it to her. She was just, <laughs> it was such a great evening. Why do I tell you that story? It's in you. There is no reason that when I visit you again, we're going to have, well, Jason, he owes me one now, so I preach for him. He's coming to L.A. to preach for me now. That's how it works. So when he comes and preaches, the next time I come down here, I'm going to ask you the question. Who have you brought far from God, near to God, in these last 18 months, two years? You're the hope of the world. You don't have to be an apologist. You're saying, well, I can't answer those questions like that. Well, you're missing the point. God brought me there because he knew I was the right person in that moment. God will lead you to the people who match your giftings. Some people don't need an apologetic argument. In fact, only about 10% of the world do. What they really need is somebody to love them, come alongside them, walk with them, pray with them. Just let them know that they are loved, they're appreciated, there's meaning, there's significance. And so I am hoping and praying to God that you will all walk out of here this weekend and you will say, God, bring somebody across my path that is far from God so that I can bring them near. You're the hope of the world. Stop complaining about the political situation in Australia and America and just go out and do what you're supposed to do. One person at a time. Walk those who are far from God near to God, and guess what? In about one generation, the whole culture will change because there will be so many Christ followers. You can do it. You've done it before, and I'm so grateful for this church and where you're going, and I hope you never lose your passion and zeal. I know I'm in a Baptist church because I grew up in a Baptist church, and if I don't quote at least one scripture, I'm in big trouble. In Romans 3, we're told, he has become both just and justifier for the one who believes. He's just in that his justice has been met, the requirements, in that sin has been punished, but he's also the one who justifies. He did for you what you could not do for yourself. He gave up what was most precious to him so he would not lose you. And if you're in this audience, and those kind of questions that I just answered have been the obstacles to faith, rest assured, God is the only logical conclusion of this universe. Love and free will bring everything into kind of cohesion, a coherency that should help us endure until we're with Jesus for eternity. Father, thank you for your love for us, for a great church called Gateway Baptist, a great pastor, a great leadership that has just decided that what makes life worth living is to help people far from God come near. That the greatest endeavor that we could ever be involved in is sending those out to all portions of the world to preach the name of Jesus. The only hope that we have of being restored in relationship with God, being forgiven of our sins through the atonement, having the divine nature of God himself dwell in us, and to reside with him in heaven for eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We just uh, thank Jeff this morning for encouraging us and challenging us. I reckon there's a whole bunch of us here this morning that are encouraged. You have been strengthened in your faith this morning. Can I just get you just to give me a little wave and say, I've been strengthened in my faith this morning. Whole, whole bunch of you. That, that is awesome. Such a gift. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I reckon...
There's a whole bunch of us here that have also been challenged this morning. We've been actually challenged to, to go to people who are far from God and to share the love of God with, uh, with people who desperately need to know His love and His grace. And as Jeff said, don't, don't be intimidated by His gift, great apologetic uh, gift. And you may be looking at that and going, well, I can't do that. As he said, he, God prepared that table for him and for his gift. And I'm confident that God is preparing a table of people or a workplace of people or the side of a football field of people for your gift. Because he actually wants to see people come to know him more than you ever will. Some of us have been really challenged this morning to actually step out of our comfort zone and to share what we know of the good news of Jesus, to share our story with others so that others will come to know Jesus. I'm going to invite us to stand this morning. We're going to sing a final song which talks about the strength of our faith, talks about the unchanging nature of Jesus and what he has done for us. He is our cornerstone. And I'm going to invite our prayer team and our pastoral team to come down the front and uh, get ready to pray. And if you're here this morning, and just as we're singing this song, you're just saying, hey, I, I do want to walk across that room. I, I want to be part of seeing others come to know the, the truth of Jesus, the saving grace of Jesus. Now, I'm willing to step out of my comfort zone. Can I encourage you this morning, just as we sing this song, just start to come now saying, you know, I've been challenged to move. I've been, I've been challenged to share. I, I want to share my story. Just start to come right now and let these guys pray with you. It's one of the joys of being part of a family. We get to, just as the angels in heaven are cheering us on, we can cheer one another on this morning. We can pray together that God would fill us afresh with the power of His Holy Spirit. Come on, as you've been challenged this morning, just come, let someone stand with you and pray for you. Just start to come now as Mark starts to sing and lead us in this final song. Just come and receive from God this morning what He has for you. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.